Hello, my name is Phoebe Smith, and I want to tell you about my book Wayfarer. Love, loss and life on Britain's ancient paths. Wayfarer tells the story of how I lost my way and found it again by walking the ancient pilgrim paths in Britain and elsewhere. Along my journey, I found hope, confronted past experiences and learned more about myself than I ever thought I would. My book, Wayfarer, is out now and available in hardback, ebook and audiobook. On this month's Wonder Woman podcast. The ice around uh, Greenland is getting thinner. I head to Greenland to talk to locals about battling extreme weather, fighting to keep their traditions, and I meet a family who gave up their high-flying jobs to live more sustainably in a remote fjord. I also speak to Queen guitarist and astronomer Brian May about the wonders of Tenerife and why he loves to watch the night sky. My life seems very strange because there's so many threads to it, but they all seem to kind of join up in various places. And I catch up with a man known as Professor Minky, who has dedicated his life to protecting the little-known dwarf minky whale. This is about a two-way interaction between humans and a wonderful, beautiful, exquisitely beautiful wild animal. Also coming up, my regular travel hack reveals how you can ensure you can be a better traveller in the new year. Get ready to boost your eco-credentials with a trip to the world's top 10 greenest destinations. And with this episode's podcast partners, Rohan, I'll be talking the best travel gear for a life on the road. Finally, I'll be revealing this episode's Wonder Woman of the Month, the traveller whose name is lost in the history books. You're listening to the Wonder Woman podcast, an audio travel magazine with me, Phoebe Smith, exploring off-the-beaten-track destinations, wild spaces, wildlife encounters, and the unsung heroes behind conservation efforts. Come wander with me. That tip-tap sound is the rain on my teepee. The water running in the background is the river that supplies the camp I'm staying at with all the water it needs. Outside, the clouds are clinging to the tops of the mountains on this small Greenlandic fjord. And yet I'm here, snuggled cosy in my bed with a proper duvet and an electric blanket. Welcome to the Wonder Woman podcast for a trip to the wilds of Greenland in a luxury you might not be expecting. Yes, you heard me right. I'd been sent on assignment to Greenland, a place I well remember from walking here a few years back when I solo hiked the Arctic Circle Trail, over 100 miles of pure wilderness with no townships, people or escape routes. That had been sublime for the thinking space it provided me. But the people I'd met in this country during my days either side of the hike intrigued me even more than the adject-inducing landscapes. And so when I was offered the chance to go back to meet a couple who shunned life in the corporate fast lane to live in a remote fjord accessed only by boat, I had to pay them a visit. So I'm Annika. And I'm John. And uh, we live here at Camp Gjerdo, which is just in the wilderness of Greenland. And we're living here all summer with our children in the wilderness. And I asked the inevitable question, why do it? Well, it was mainly because we both had high-end jobs and I was traveling a whole lot. And uh, yeah, we had we had good salaries and what a lot of people would consider as a good life. And we, of course, we, we were happy, but we just felt we didn't have enough time as a family. We didn't have enough time with our children. And, and I guess we are more like hippies. We don't, material things doesn't really matter much 
for us. So we're like, what is it that we're doing with our lives? I mean, we want to be able to travel. We want to be able to spend the time with our children. And now we are just working from from eight in the morning until four or five, and then after dinner we'll work again. So we we went on this uh, vacation, and it was the first vacation we had for years. And during that vacation, we just realized that the way that we're wasting our lives is not it. It's not for us. Now Annika and John spend a lot of time with their kids, who have really taken to life outside and showing guests around their wilderness home. As I discovered when their son Villas took us to catch fish in the traditional Inuit way. So right now we are here at the end of the Amitwarsuk fjord and I'm here with Villas, my son who's nine. And we're here to catch Dactic Char by hands and he's actually becoming really good at it. Last week he catched six fish yes. that he brought home to my mom and she was so proud that her grandson came with all these fish for him. But I'm the best one to catch the fish. You're the best. <laughs> you are. A form of trout tickling. They basically grab the Arctic char from underneath, clasping their gills tightly, then picking them up out the water. I watched Annika and her son do this expertly, twice. For her, showing people these traditional Inuit methods of hunting and living sustainably, as they do in their camp, is a real driver for her, both as a mother and as a businesswoman. Because I think it's important that when you want to eat meat and animals, then you have to know uh, how, you, you need to know where it comes from and you need to know that the meat doesn't just come from a freezer. And you get another respect for, for the animals and then I think you appreciate it a lot more when, when you're eating it later on. And I think that's a really important life lesson. It certainly seems to have made an impact on her children. In the beginning, they were spending time with the iPad, um, but but the more time we spend out here, the less time they spent with the iPad. So they're just walking around and playing in the nature and making, yeah, making a bonfire and cutting in in uh, in some wood that they find, and they go and collect mussels and berries, and yeah, they're becoming these wild kids, which is really nice. The plight of this wild living family had inspired me. So I asked Annika to introduce me to others living this far off the beaten track. So we walked and boated to another settlement where I was to meet the northernmost sheep farmer in Greenland. We have this uh, farmer now who, have, who mainly runs his sheep farm, but he's also growing potatoes and so on. He's actually using the old Viking, uh, Viking fields. Similarly to Anika, I asked him why he'd chosen to do it somewhere so remote. Anika translates. He really liked the challenge of being the the sheep farmer, the northernmost sheep farmer in Greenland. So he just wanted to take up the challenge. Apparently no one chooses to sheep farm this far north because of the climate. So I asked, does it get very cold? He's saying, no, it doesn't get very cold. It's only about minus 22 when it's really cold. (laughs) So positively warm. This is too hot today then. We've got some sunshine. (laughs) His wife works over in the settlement, a boat ride away. She's just taken on the role of a teacher in the tiny community. We went over, courtesy of her husband, to pay her a visit. 
So according to the statistics, there's about 55 people living here in Gepisislit. But in reality, there's only about 35 people living in this small community. And uh, there's not much to do here. They have a shop where you can buy everything you need for your daily life in Greenland. So you can buy everything from divers to to shrimps, to guns, to <laughs> chewing gum. Like you can find everything there. And then there's a small school where there is about four or five students. The head teacher is Luna, who had only begun a week before I visited. She explained a little about teaching in a remote community, about its challenges, but also rewards. But she also wanted to talk about her facial tattoos, of which she is supremely proud. Ah, okay. So it's tribal, tribal tattoos from uh, the area where, where she comes from in Umanak. Luna's tattoo on her chin was perhaps the most striking, and she said her newest. I asked what it represented. Whale tail. A whale tail. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in winter in Umanak, we have winter darkness. And at, the, at this time, uh, whales came and... It is our joy. Her tattoo was deeply symbolic. Her chosen one of a whale coming during the season of darkness, which was a symbol of hope to her and her ancestors. They were hugely traditional, and mummies demonstrate their former popularity. Yet you won't find many Greenlanders sporting facial tattoos today, and Luna herself faced some criticism, including from her husband and parents, as Anika translates. Her parents, they, she didn't talk a lot with them about the tattoos before she got them. But when she got them, her parents were kind of shocked. And before she got them, her husband was saying, of course you cannot do that. What are you thinking of? Of course you can't get the tattoos. And then she gave it a lot of thoughts. And, and she was actually start to think by herself, okay, no, I can't do this. Of course I can't do this. That's not a proper thing to do. But then on the other hand, she said, I, I can't believe that I'm so influenced by the Western culture that I can't even do what is traditional in my own country and what's traditional uh, in our culture because I've been so westernized in my way of thinking. And that was mainly what kind of provoked her to do it because she just wanted to feel free and be proud about her culture and then do it. And... Uh, when her husband said, no, of course you can't do it. It's it's not a proper thing to do. She said, well, then it's good that you don't owe me. You can't, uh, you can't tell me what to do and what not to do. And I want them, so I'll just do it. So when he saw her with the tattoos, he was quite shocked. But he was also surprised that she could still look so pretty, even that she had the facial tattoos. My next stop saw me heading further north still, this time to meet a woman called Serena, who, like Lune, is very proud of her heritage. She performs in theatre groups and works with filmmakers to help keep traditional dress and hunting techniques alive. My father is caribou hunter. Oh, wow. He's older than my mom a lot, so... I have a lot of tradition knowledge. So, yeah. yeah. Which is wonderful that he passed it on. Yeah, I love yeah. it. And yeah. I'm very lucky to have it. So. Do they still, is there still mm. a push in the community up here in Elusat to teach younger people these mm. old ways? Um, yes, it's very important, important to keep the tradition. But a lot of people is losing the tradition because of the uh, modern lifestyles. But... <clears throat> but we are still lucky to have it, to know. We'll still do hunting and everything. 
But it's not just Inuit tradition she worries about losing. It's more than that. It's her home country itself. When I was a teenager, I used to fly with my grand-uncle as a pilot, so he used to take me for a ride on a plane. So I could see all eyes. Manau is lakeish. I was shocked to see it. But when I came back to Ilulisa, I was even more to shock how much it's melting and drastically. So we face the climate change a lot. This story, told against the backdrop of a pleasure helicopter flight being taken over the ice field above us, was particularly poignant, especially when she revealed the human cost that has already arisen due to melting ice here in Greenland. When I was kids, uh, people used to talk that to Disco Island, from Asia to Disco Island to Ilulissat. Not anymore. It's too dangerous. They can't. No, it's wow. So the uh, you... last one that were talk I think it was a couple of years ago. My ex-boyfriend's grand-uncle, he got on the ice where we were filming, and he died on dog setting. We didn't know. We were facing, we, we were passing us on dog setting in uh, April. Normally you could do dog setting. But it was, the ice wasn't thick enough. March, March. It was March, I think, but it, it wasn't thick enough anymore, so he died. Oh my goodness. And uh, some dogs rescued. So, But so. the dogs swam away. Some, He has cut his dogs. So he, and he has holding his hands like this and because he knew he's dying. So he cut on the climate change. So, and he lost his dog. He don't want his dog to die. So he took his, at least he's yeah. cut them. To let them free so they could survive. Yeah, so oh. it was a very, very hard time. Sorina's story was shocking, but it was not the only one I would hear. My final stop was to meet guide and Greenlandic dog breeder Frank and his partner, who are fighting to help bolster numbers of the canines as they have witnessed their use and therefore popularity decline. People don't use it for fishing anymore. Uh, we don't have uh, long periods with strong ice on the sea, so instead of going out with dog sled for fishing, most fishermen would use the boats now. The ice around uh, Greenland is getting thinner uh, and it's been going quite fast, so... The purpose of fishing and hunting with the dogs, the the months we can do it are so short. Finally, I went to get up close and personal with a glacier to see for myself just how quickly things were disappearing. You can say this glacier hasn't retreated very much over a long time span. So maybe in 150 years it's retreated... 500 meters but through the last three years it's retreated what 25 50 meters so a huge increase a huge increase yeah and a huge acceleration and you can also see the the entire height of the glacier has become smaller if you look to the sides it's maybe 50 meters lower than it used to be only three years ago Mm. seeing the melting ice with frank hearing serena's story and learning about Luna and her battle to preserve her traditions, and Anika and her determination to make sustainable hunting and living become the norm in Greenland, left me thinking about how the people up here have always had a battle on their hands. It used to be one just with extreme cold, then became about fighting to protect their culture. And, now, their last stand is one against seeing their country actually melting beneath their feet. And that is one battle that they, and indeed none of us anywhere in the world, can afford to be lost.
That was me reporting from the wilds of Greenland, a place with inspiring people and a story that I hope made you as well as me want to do something about the way I travel going forwards. While we all love to travel, we cannot deny that while there is a hugely positive impact our explorations can have on communities we visit and people we meet, and indeed on ourselves too, we can't ignore the impact that it has on our planet. We have to consider ways we can continue to do it, but do it in a more responsible way. And that's why this episode's Travel Hack of the Month looks at the things we can start doing to be a better traveller. Travel longer. Remember how it suddenly became normal to head overseas on a long-haul flight for just a three-day weekend, maybe a few times a year even? These kind of regular short trips are responsible for emitting huge amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. Instead, now that remote working is increasingly becoming an option for some of us, if possible, consider taking a longer jaunt and spend time really getting to know a place rather than a flying visit. Not only will it make for a more richer travel experience for you, but fewer longer trips per year will dramatically cut out emissions if we all pledge to do it. Next up, travel greener. Price comparison sites such as Skyscanner already show the carbon emissions on flights that you're choosing, so you can see if it's worth forking out the extra tenner to take the airline who is using greener fuel and working to cut emissions. We need to send the message to the industry that greener fuel should be the way forward, and we do that with our cash. So choose the more responsible option wherever possible. Make getting there part of the adventure. There are some destinations where flying is truly the only option, but where it isn't, do look at alternative routes to your travel goal. Sleeper trains are making a massive comeback across Europe, meaning not only can you opt for a greener way of travelling, but also save a night's budget in a hotel by spending it on the train. You'll also get boring miles done while getting shut-eye. It's win-win. Other than trains, there's ferries, boats, buses, all of which add to the sense of your journey and offer the chance to get a glimpse of places you may not have even considered visiting. Then, of course, don't rule out cycling or even walking. Speaking of someone who hiked the length of Britain, I can honestly say there hasn't been a better or more memorable adventure before or since, and certainly not one where I really felt I saw a place. Think sustainably every step of the way. On flights, take your own reusable water bottle rather than buying single-use plastic. Airports have water fountains to fill them after security. They obviously need to be emptied when you go through. And flight crew will usually fill them on board. You only have to ask. You can buy ones with water filters that come built in for the countries when water quality is questionable. Not only is it a green choice, but it will save you money too. Same with shampoo and toiletries. Take your own refillable containers rather than using the tiny single ones in hotels. Don't get sheets and towels changed every single day. And choose accommodation committed to sustainability. By demanding it, we create green options as the norm and not the exception. Finally, leave no trace. The ideal way to travel is to have the place we visit make a mark on us, not the other way around. So wherever you go, make sure the activity you sign up to take part in doesn't negatively affect the environment. Don't drop litter, obviously. In fact, I make the point of picking up other people's litter when hiking, if I can, because trash breeds more trash. If we all go with the motto of leaving a place in a better place than when we found it, the whole world will benefit, and us with it. 
That was my travel hack of the month, the insider knowledge I offer every single episode so that you can become a more responsible and happier traveller. Talking of happy, I defy anyone to have a close encounter with a whale and not leave with a massive grin plastered on their face. Did you know that whales sequester more carbon than trees, up to 33 tonnes of it during their lifetime, which then sinks down and is trapped beneath the sea when they die naturally at sea? Scientists have told us that to help the climate, one of the single best ways we can do it is to save the whales. That's why this episode, my travel hero is Professor Minky, aka Dr Alistair Birtles, a man who has dedicated over 20 years of his life to studying and protecting a subspecies of minky whale, which every year visits the Australian waters. So you're listening to the Wonder Woman podcast. I'm here in Cairns in Australia with someone that the media likes to call Professor Minky, but I know he prefers, we refer to him as Alistair. (laughs) Um, So Alistair, really good to meet you. Tell me, why dwarf minky whales? Well, they are an elusive mystery. Um, Until the 1980s, we didn't even know they existed, so... It's a, an incredible privilege to work on an animal that um, nobody knows anything about. And so there's everything to find out about. And uh, it's also a difficult problem because they only come here in the depths of winter uh, at a remote site on the edge of the continental shelf. So you need quite large boats like this um, tourist boat to get out there. And so I've developed this wonderful oh, collaboration with the industry. Um, to get us out to the shelf edge to um, do these, um, do this research collection. Um, so it's uh, a wonderfully mysterious animal, um, and they're still an undescribed subspecies of whale, so they don't have a proper scientific name. And so we've spent the last um, 25 or 30 years just trying to uh, make a little sense out of this, of that brief period when they come to the Great Barrier Reef and. Uh, gather together from uh, presumably uh, all over large areas of the, the south, southern ocean and the, um, the Antarctic Ocean, um, they come here to the Great Barrier Reef. And it's the only known predictable ag- aggregation in the world, which makes it uh, extraordinary to be able to uh, come and meet the whales there year after year and see who's come back. And, uh, and do you have any idea of the the size of the population of the dwarf minke worldwide or can you I, I mean I'm guessing you can only use the research you have on the ones that you encounter we have no idea of the worldwide population um, they are listed as uh, data deficient conservation status unknown um, and unfortunately that doesn't trigger um, any funding you need to be vulnerable or um, uh, endangered to uh, trigger lots of funding so it's a, it's a really difficult problem to, um, to work on. Um, so we have no idea about the overall population. We do have an estimate from about 10 years ago from a um, PhD student of mine of the interacting population. And that was um, some hundreds of animals in the sort of 500 to 800 um, sort of um, scale. Um, and uh, the work that we've been doing over the last three years, the last three years of uh, detailed work, because I've built up quite a big team to be able to do that sort of work again, we'll come up with another population estimate of the interacting animals. But just from um, you know first uh, glance at the data, the numbers seem to be staying pretty steady, except for a big dip in 2016, and we still don't know why that was. 
um, but um, many fewer animals made it up to the aggregation area and I was really worried that this might be the first indications of um, climate change impacts on the Southern Ocean and maybe they hadn't got enough food to make the, uh, the migration and that could be what, what happened. But the following year um, they came through in normal numbers and although there were many fewer calves that year, um, the following year there were lots of calves and this year we have a sense that there's lots of yearling animals so that's rather exciting. So things are looking optimistic for them which is great. Can you just describe to me your very first encounter with a dwarf minke whale? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not sure I actually remember my very first because it's now almost 25 years ago um, I can remember the excitement of that first uh, week of, of swimming with them um, but they, um, they blend in incredibly well with the blueness their counter shading means they kind of just materialise out of the blue and then you see that white shoulder um, and it sort of glows and sometimes you just see this white moving object and you're trying to work out what it is and then you realise it's a minky coming towards you. And then they come closer and they have a look and if their confidence builds then they come closer and closer and closer. And uh, they can, as you know, come um, uh, very close indeed. <laughs> so, so we have this technical term of a very close approach which is three metres or less and then a rather Monty Python-esque very close approach which is one meter or less and uh, that doesn't happen often but it can happen it's happened to me um, several times this season but it didn't happen for us this week no. so um, and uh, I think we basically had whales within a whale length of us so six meter whales within six meters so that was um, it's wonderful but it can be it can be <laughs> quite extraordinary and once again it has been this season you know just um, an incredible season you know we had two or three huge weeks with numbers of whales and incredibly interactive whales coming very close indeed. <laughs> <laughs> what is the one thing that we can do as travelers as tourists to help the dwarf minky whale well everybody that comes on <clears throat> these boats helps can help by providing well first of all they help by coming on the boats because that enables the company to uh, make uh, time available for uh, me on board the boat which is wonderful um, and I could put my team I had 18 people out on 35 trips across this um, this season of June and July uh, in 2019 um, so that's fantastic they enable us to be here uh, at all but then if they donate copies of their photos, we can identify the whales in their photos and we're currently getting about 50,000 images a year from divers on boats in this industry. And then we can track the whales, once we identify every whale in every photo, um, we can track the whales in space and time around the reef and see how much time they're spending with the boats and what else they're doing and so on. So that's a huge help. But I think we just need people to be passionate about wonderful animals like this. Um, they are icons of the marine environment and possibly they are potentially indicator species of the health of that marine environment. So maintaining these populations uh, in a healthy way and uh, enjoying them in an ecologically sustainable way, because otherwise it shouldn't happen, um, I think uh, can help our interactions as species. This is about a two-way interaction between humans and a wonderful, beautiful, exquisitely beautiful wild animal. And uh, I think we can learn many lessons about our 
place on this earth and so on from animals like this. That was Dr Alistair Bertels, a.k.a. Professor Minky, leader of the Minky World Project, a non-profit research fund set up by James Cook University in Australia to support research into dwarf minky whale biology, behaviour and sustainable tourism interactions. While there are so many inspirational projects around the world working hard to protect our environment and wildlife, when it comes to countries, there are definitely those going above and beyond to make their part of the world a better, greener place. The best way to make those lagging behind follow suit? Drive change by making the greener places top of your to-visit list. Money talks way more than words. So where to go? Listen up for this episode's top 10. There's hundreds of lists out there claiming to rate the greenest countries in the world. So I chose the following based on initiatives and emissions happening right now that are not just about big words, but about big actions too. So where will you go next? Listen up. In at 10, it's Bhutan. Before the world was talking about climate change and the way it is now, Bhutan already realised that protect its land of steep mountains, precariously perched monasteries and alpine pastures, it needed to regulate tourism. Their mission was simple, aim for high value, low impact. As such, it's crowd-free and impressively carbon negative, one of the only countries in the world to achieve this. In at nine, it's Greece. You may be surprised to note that the land of sun, sand and sea features in this list. But beneath the fly and flop reputation is one of Europe's most sustainable food destinations. With a centuries-old focus on organic produce and locally sourced food, not to mention seasonal offerings, they may fall at other stakes, including single-use plastic being a big one, but their huge win is an agricultural practice, which means masses of carbon emissions are saved every single year. So we can enjoy the grub and feel good. Yum. In at eight, it's Iceland, almost entirely powered by geothermal energy produced by their very active volcanic origins. They even offer a host of tourist experiences that are equally as green, including whale watching by electric vessel. See episode seven of this podcast for more. In at seven, it's Switzerland. Coining the term sustainable, this country is more than just a greenwashing marketing gimmick. It has one of the highest waste recycling rates in the world, as well as a push to stop retailers using all that unnecessary packaging. An incredible public transport system and both hydro and geothermal power producing over 50% of their energy needs. In at six, it's Finland. Look at a map of Finland and you'll see a whopping 80% is covered with carbon capturing forest. But it doesn't end there. The Tourist Board has mapped out a handy guide called Sustainable Finland to ensure that visitors can easily pinpoint the most eco-friendly escapes and activities. In at five, it's Sweden, the birthplace of flight shaming, thanks to pioneer Greta Thunberg. Here, one in four people have made the switch from planes to trains in the last few years. Plus, the country was one of the first to introduce carbon tax, which cut down on the reliance on them dramatically. In at four, it's Scotland. Host of COP26, Scotland is a stronghold of an increasing number of environmentally friendly initiatives. First up, Orkney, one of the most inspiring places I've ever visited, producing all of the electric they need from renewables and running ferries on hydrogen alone. Then there's the Isle of Egg, further south. That is 100% off-grid. Then, of course, there's rewilding projects in places like Allerdale and Glenfeshi, to name a couple. In at three, it's Costa Rica. With all the images of rainforest being felled to make way for cattle farming, it's heartening to see a Latin American destination make this list. Not only is Costa Rica fiercely protecting its tropical rainforests with protected status, but also produces 93% of its energy from renewables. It also pushes green activities. Cycling coast to coast, anyone? Let's go. In at two, it's Norway. 
It's official. Norway loves electric cars, with 80% of all new car sales being EVs and set to ban petrol engines by 2025. Add to that hydropower, providing a wealth of the energy used and a super efficient recycling system. Plus, have you seen the hiking opportunities easily accessed by train? Need I say more? But in at one, it's Denmark, which of course is home to the capital of Copenhagen, which is on track to become the world's first carbon neutral capital. This country is pioneering the green way of life. Waste heats houses, bikes are the order of the day, with electric buses for those who prefer to be inside. Then there's planet-friendly urban planning applications, including a smattering of cycle paths, which mean it's easier and cheaper to ditch the car and make sustainability a way of life. It does warm my heart, rather than the planet, to have so many of my favourite places in the world on that list, which proves that you can be green and still be an exciting place to visit. I hope that many more places will follow their lead with real actions that will make a difference. Speaking of actions, when out on an adventure, what's the one item you should never leave home without? Your backpack? Your phone? Nope. Turns out, it's your hat. Yes, it's that time of the episode again where I, along with my podcast partners Rohan, look at the most geeky area of travel, gear. Seriously though, get it right and you won't notice it, but get it wrong and it can ruin your trip. This time it's all about hats. Don't believe how important they are? How come Indiana Jones risked his life, well, hand, for his on all of his escapades? Because they are a key kit staple. Listen up. In hot weather, they protect your face from burning. Think a wide brim option, like the aforementioned Jones. In cold weather, it's better to get a large woolly beanie, one that covers your ears too, and they can help make your temperature stay regulated. Then out in the rain, opt for a cap, as not only do they fit under your waterproof jacket hood, but they can keep the water out of your eyes too, allowing you to still be able to map read and look where you're going. I've used several options on my trips in all weathers and wanted to highlight a couple of the options I found handily on the Rohan website. The Aran Cap is a wonderful waterproof, windproof and breathable number that also boasts micro-fleece lining to keep you warm and covers your ears to boot. In the sun, go for the Tilly. It has UV protection, a secret pocket for emergency cash or a credit card and a fabric tie in case you're out in the wind. Then the Corrib Beanie is my go-to. It's reversible because, hey, who doesn't like to have choices? It's also made of a snuggly merino wool, meaning warmth and anti-smell. Thanks to my wonderful podcast partners, Rohan, for helping this Wonder Woman keep it all under her hat. That was my regular dose of gear love, the section I know many of you secretly like more than anything else. Now, speaking of noticeable bonds, they don't come more recognisable than my next guest, Queen guitarist and astronomer Brian May, who I spoke to many moons ago at a launch event for Starmus, the Astronomy Festival, for so forgive the slightly shaky sound, about his love of Tenerife and the space above it. My life's been very strange because there's so many threads to it, but they all seem to kind of join up in various places yeah. in ways that I wouldn't have expected. So yes, in 1970 or so, I was in Tenerife as a student. Yeah. Um, in a tiny hut which I had supervised being built. Yeah. And there were two huts on the top of that ridge at that point, and they were the beginnings of what is now the Observatory del Tabor, oh, wow. a huge observatory in, in Tenerife. And there I was, some of the time on my own, completely. Yeah. No phones, obviously, no, no mobile phones. Anymore. Yeah. Just getting on with my observations, and sometimes I was with someone else who was helping. And one of the guys is here, Tom Hicks, is here today, who helped me in my observations. Yeah. Um, 
So I spent a lot of time in Tenerife, feeling very small and, and, and young and inept, as you do, <laughs> but gradually learning how to take care of myself. So Tenerife is part of my growing up process. And, and I, I love it, you know, and I particularly love the centre of the island where, where the volcano is. And, yeah. And they very carefully kept it undeveloped, thank God. Oh, that's good. Uh, the top is, is beautiful and moon-like, and then all around it is this beautiful um, ring of pine forests, the canary pines. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's a very heavenly place to be. <laughs> I love going back there. And so do you spend much time there now? Yeah, I get back there whenever I can. Garrick, who's the organiser of Stars, lives there. So that's oh, another wow. reason that's handy, yeah. And I've also been for lots of holidays because it's a nice place to be, just to get away. And Brilliant. Sometimes with children, sometimes with my wife. And where else is good for stargazing around the world? Well, anywhere that's not light polluted. Yeah. Um, it's pretty difficult in England to find a good place, although there are a few nice dark spots like in Dartmoor and yeah. the Lake District. And, and, uh, you know, there are parts of Scotland that are nice. Yeah. Um, around the world, well, you're pretty good. At, you're pretty well off on a boat if you're, you know, on a large boat miles away from anywhere. Yeah. It's a nice place to be a bit stunned. And a lot of these, you know, there are some astro. Um, Trips, they? Yeah, they are, they're becoming more and more popular all the time. So, yeah. I've been to some good places to see eclipses. You know, I, for a long time I followed solar eclipses, total solar eclipses. Oh, yeah. Those are, it's a kind of life changing experience to see one of those things. You know, so disappointing we couldn't see the one. Because <laughs> of the clouds. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I went to Curacao in the Dutch Antilles to see one, and that was a beautiful place to look at the stars. Wow. I went to one in outer Mongolia, and that was an amazing place. That would be amazing anyway, but. <laughs> it takes you to places you would not normally get to. Yeah. yeah I'm sure Antarctica is great. Oh, I'd love to try that one there. <laughs> I actually was there earlier this year, I have to say. It was incredible, yeah. yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. The other place is Africa, you know, I spent a little bit of time on the, um, the um, what do you call them? What, um, places where you go and see animals, what do you call them? The National, the Reserves. Reserve, thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> to see the stars from one of those reserves in, in Kenya is amazing because of course the southern sky is very different from the sky we see yeah. it's a lot richer in bright stars than Milky Way is bright yeah. so that's phenomenal I spent some time down there actually with Nelson Mandela oh wow and that was unforgettable in so many ways yeah. one of the great highlights was just being out there at night and listening to the sounds of the jungle and seeing those wonderful stars wow it's going to do brilliant and so you've travelled the world a lot in your sort of other life when you toured a lot. Um, did you get a chance to do much exploring during those times or was it just kind of place to place? Well, you get moments. A lot of it is just bang, 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 hotel, here, travel, Yeah. Um, we had odd times where we, we built in moments where we could go and see a bit of the world. So yeah. I'm very grateful to that. I actually like being a working tourist, if you like, yeah. like visiting a place and being able to give something as well as just take in. I like that, you know, you go and uh, become a part of the life of a place for a little while. Yeah. I find it very satisfying. You get so much from interacting with people. 
So tourism is about that kind of interaction. Yeah. Occasionally, you want to just go away and lie down somewhere. <laughs> occasionally, do that, but that wears off very quickly. And do you have a favourite place in the world? Tenerife. Yeah. Brilliant. Any particular reason why? The private parts of Tenerife. Um, well, because it was part of my growing up, I suppose, and I do feel a strange spiritual influence from Taylor. Strangely enough, you know, that this is an astronomer talking. Yeah. You know, we're supposed to be very materialistic, aren't we? But actually, you know, the spiritual world is something that I'm always aware of, and I feel an in an undisputable tug from, from, from the island. And when I'm in the island, I feel a tug from Tadeh. That was my childhood hero, Brian May, who inspired me to learn to play guitar and, perhaps, just inspired a few of us to head to Tenerife. And already, it's nearly the end of the episode, so time for me to share with you my utterly incredible Wonder Woman of the Month. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. In these tricky times of limited travel opportunities, thank you so much for bearing with me to work on every new episode. Your ongoing support and patience has meant the world. Please do subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please, please, please do leave a review. It means so very much, especially during these trying times. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Phoebe R. Smith. Go to my website, phoebe-smith.com, where you can sign up for my occasional newsletter and get in touch with me. And of course, do check out my friends at rohan.co.uk. Now, this episode, you've heard me wax lyrical about the joys of greener travel, and they don't come much greener than hiking. Think famous mountain walkers? What names come to mind? Mallory? Scott? Bonington? Perhaps not the name of my Wonder Woman of the Month, the one and only... Emmeline Freda Defoe. From the moment my eyes rested on the snow-clad Alps, I worshipped their beauty and was filled with a passionate longing to touch those shining snows, to climb to their heights of silence and solitude and feel myself one with the mighty forces around me. So wrote Frida about her love of the world's high places, particularly of New Zealand, the country she called home. If we read it now, it wouldn't seem that surprising that a woman would love mountains, But back in the late 1800s, it was a controversial assertion, especially when that same woman declared that the profession of mountaineer was her chosen occupation. Born in 1882, this proud Australian made it her mission to summit peaks after falling in love with them in nearby Kooringai Chase National Park. She taught herself how to rock climb, and one fateful day, when she saw a photograph of New Zealand's tallest mountain, she was mesmerised by it and decided she had to climb it. Thanks to a wealthy aunt who left her all her money, she was able to pursue her goal. She met with a guide and began learning rope work and ice climbing. However, society demanded that she wear a skirt, not the easiest garment to climb in, and take a chaperone. Of this she wrote, I sighed, not for the first time in my existence, over the limits imposed upon me by the mere fact that I was unfortunate enough to be born a woman. She did it anyway, agreeing to take a less experienced male porter with her too, one whose life she saved when she instinctively helped perform an arrest using an ice axe and rope when he slipped. She worked her way up other peaks, Mount Seely, then Mount Malte Brun. It was there that she would make her first, first. She became the first known woman to climb to the summit, the fourth known person to climb it, and fastest known time ever taken, reached by going the most dangerous route. That record would remain unbroken for years. Then, in 1910, she became the first known woman to summit Mount Cook. 
Once again, her dress became a talking point, not something her male counterparts ever had to address. With the expectation that she was now a success, they all said she should adapt to a more male attire. And so in a final act of rebellion, our Wonder Woman refused, continuing to wear the skirt, once more upsetting people's expectations just because she could. She went on to make more firsts on the mountaineering world, including first ascents in which she was able to name mountains, one of which she named after her partner, Muriel Cadogan, another aspect of her life much commented on. They moved together to England, and where Frida wrote a book about her climbs, but then World War I prevented her climbing in the Alps where she'd hoped to push her skills even further. Then tragedy struck, when her partner Muriel's family forcefully separated them both, disapproving of two women living together, and sadly, Cadogan took her own life. This sent Frida into a depression, which culminated in her also committing suicide in 1935. Despite the successes of her life, her death cast a shadow over them, it seemed, and it wasn't until 2006 when a memorial stone was finally laid on her previously unmarked grave. For reaching the dizzying heights of her male counterparts, despite barriers placed in her way due to her gender, for pushing the plight of the LGBT community well ahead of her time, and for continuing to defy gender expectations when it came to dress, Frida Defar is unequivocally this episode's Wonder Woman of the Month. Wow, what a woman Freda Defar was. I'll be sure to think of her next time I stand on a mountain summit, whether in trousers or a skirt, because thanks to her, we are free to do either. In the next episode of the Wonder Woman podcast, I head to Wales on a foodie tour to discover why sustainable travel can leave a good taste in your mouth, literally. I also chat to farmer-turd-conservationist Chris Jones, the man who is fighting to bring wild beaver back to Britain after a long absence. My travel hack will see you blagging your way and rewilding. We'll look at the best warm layer gear for your travels in association with my podcast partners, Rohan. And I recommend the best activities you have to try in your next adventure. See you then. Wonder Woman out. The Wonder Woman podcast is written and edited by me, Phoebe Smith. The producer for this episode is Daniel Nielsen. The wonderful logo was designed by John Summerton and the photograph is by Claire Roadley. Thanks as ever to our podcast partners, Rohan, and a final thanks to all the people I met on my journey and were willing to talk to me. It's because of all of you that this podcast is able to happen at all. Hello, my name is Phoebe Smith, and I want to tell you about my book, Wayfarer. Love, loss and life on Britain's ancient paths. Wayfarer tells the story of how I lost my way and found it again by walking the ancient pilgrim paths in Britain and elsewhere. Along my journey, I found hope, confronted past experiences, and learned more about myself than I ever thought I would. My book, Wayfarer, is out now and available in hardback, ebook, and audiobook.